Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. Tonight's original guest, Vladimir Putin, had to cancel because he doesn't like being around people as sexy as our host. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine. Uh, On tonight's show, let's jump right into that because there's a lot to get through tonight. Um, On tonight's show, pipe parts and and more stories with Alan Schwartz. So uh, pipe parts will be Alan Schwartz stories and then uh, we'll have more stories with Alan Schwartz after that. Uh, we've got some news coming up and then uh, mailbag, uh, music, rant, all that coming up, but it's a jam-packed episode. So let's get right to it. Uh, the news broke last Friday that uh, La DC Enterprises, uh, parent of Cornell and Deal and SmokingPipes.com, have purchased the Peterson Pipe Factory and the Peterson Retail Store in Dublin. Uh, at the same time, the news broke that Scandinavian Tobacco Group has purchased the rights to the Peterson Pipe Tobacco. Uh, so, what does that mean for all of us? Well, not much. Uh, it probably means that the pipe tobaccos will be uh, uh, a little less expensive because uh, Peterson obviously didn't own their own tobacco factory, so they were having it made by somebody else. So, maybe we'll see a little bit of a price reduction in Peterson Pipe Tobacco. Uh, in Peterson pipes, it probably just means uh, the same. Uh, the same will carry on. Everybody, the factory is staying in Ireland. The shop is staying right in downtown Dublin. Maybe we'll see. Uh, maybe we'll see a little bit of a redesign and stuff, and maybe a little bit more. Uh, I don't know, more, more uh, uh, younger or uh, fashionably styled stuff from Peterson. Who knows? But. Uh, I'm happy to see that uh, Peterson pipes will be continuously made in Ireland, right where they belong. And I know that they're in uh, that the pipe factory's in good hands, and I wish them all the best. All right, let's get the show rolling. So everybody, sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. There's nothing quite like working in my shop. Or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. We are back, and we uh, continue with our summer series, the uh, Story Times with Alan Schwartz, and we're going to pick up just chronologically in the conversation where we left off, and uh, this kind of begins with uh, wandering around old London town uh, talking about tobacco shops. So what were the uh, what were the other awesome. famous shops on, in London that you got a chance to visit? Freiburg and Treyer. Um, uh, who was one of them? Um, Is it J.J. Fox? No, J.J. Fox was a couple of blocks away around the corner, oh. and I've, I've been in there a number of times, but I don't recall buying anything, buying pipes in there. I, I bought some tobaccos there. Um, they they were up on a street. Um, 
if I am correct, they weren't on German Street. They were up on a street. Yeah, they were kind of, they're kind of on a cross street. Yeah, but clo- closer to the British Museum Library, which is on Piccadilly. And going down from there, oh no, it was behind, right, it was behind the British Museum Library, uh, towards, sort of at the end of Savile Row, which is, you know, it's famous for tailoring, but it was also, they had other things besides tailors, but that whole area is called Savile Row. But the street Savile Row sort of uh, dead ends into the street, you could look at a map, that's at the back of the British Museum Library. and it was uh, not a British Museum library. That's over in another part of town. But back sent to the British Museum, and uh, and then in front of the front of it, sort of going south at that point. In front of it is Piccadilly, and then one block down any street from Piccadilly, you come to German Street, which uh, runs parallel to it, and. Um, I remember the name of this other shop, a very distinguished shop, and they had some beautiful pipes that they had made by various makers and stamped their own, and they had a whole line of tobacco that were made by very good makers. Astley's. uh, What? Astley's. That's it. Astley's. Astley's. So they were there, and um, the same same person who owned the shop, his name was Paul... uh, I don't remember. Again, I have all this in my notebooks and diaries and so on, but I don't remember it off the top of my head because I've been out of it for a while. I mean, I've been, although I've been involved with the tobacco business uh, today, as of, as of today's date, I have been retired from it for ten years is a good working number. Although I'm still active by coming to the shows, and but I can't come to the shows. The, the the major shows, uh, the, the commercial shows, which is for trade only, I go to like RT, what used to be RTD. I go there because I sold my my business uh, to a larger company than I when I wanted to retire, and I go to the shows with them in order to in order to um, you know I bring in a lot of customers, and I enjoy being at the show and schmoozing with people and going out to dinner. Mm-hmm. It's a, yeah. for me, it's become partly social, but but that's that that'll come later. All right, let, uh, let, let's go back a little bit because we talked about the pipe that you dreamed of. Yeah. Uh, tobacco wise, did you go through the usual aromatic English and try different things, and and where did you oh, kind yeah. of settle? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, I I I did. I tried everything that was to be tried in, within my purview. And then in later years, when I had everything that was made accessible to me, I think I've tried most of it. I mean, you know, uh, including Russian tobaccos. And, you know, <laughs> somebody would come back from out of Slobovia and say, you got to try this. And I would do try it. And it would, you know, it, it would put instant hair on your teeth. And, it was just <laughs> and then when I traveled a lot, you know, uh, French tobacco, the... Um, in which I, I wound up loving the the most ordinary French tobacco, the ordinary uh, tobacco that they used to make Goulash cigarettes. They also make a, a broader cut in the pipe tobacco, and I used to like that, but I liked it only when I was in France. I, and that was a funny <laughs> thing. I would buy a package, and I would smoke it, and I'd love it. You know, it's in the cafe, having a cup of coffee, and smoking this Goulash uh-huh. tobacco and feeling I didn't feel French. I was still a, you know, a traveler, but... 
But and then as soon as I got back to the state, to the states, it tasted horrible to me. So I get, and I've heard that from a lot of people. You know? I I feel the exact same way about some of the wines and and regional liqueurs that I've had and I've learned now. They're wonderful when you're in the atmosphere or when you're right there and you're breathing the air that it was made in. But when you bring it home, it's just not quite the same. No, it it, it isn't, and. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't remember if they do it anymore, and I don't know these kind of uh, bars. And I don't mean bars in the American sense, but uh, uh, coffee shops, corner, corner uh, cafes, where you stand and have a cup of coffee if you want. There's a, there are two tables in the back or outside where you can sit down. But I remember in the early years when I was traveling on a, a student's or a graduate student's uh, uh, allowance, so to speak. There were cafes where you'd go in early in the morning, and there were a lot of workmen. And in other words, this is before they had to be at work, let's say, 8 o'clock, 7.30. You know, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. There were a bunch of guys there, uh, blue-collar guys, uh, having coffee and talking in rapid French that I couldn't understand, um, and arguing with each other, which is a, a ball <laughs> game or a yeah. cafe game. Um, and the standard breakfast that they'd serve you without you even asking for it was a croissant on a plate, a mark, which is a very rough brandy. Uh, it's like the, the 32nd pressing of the grapes. I mean, it's really, it's really like, like rocket fuel, but a little, I mean, not a big glass, a little, little shot of that, a, uh, a, a black coffee, um, a small one and, and one Gaulois, unfiltered Gaulois. That was the standard little cafe breakfast. Oh. It was wonderful. And, and, you know, just imagine that. If you didn't like croissant, they could ask him for, you know, some other kind of, uh, what do they call it, a tranche, a, a slice of, the, of, the, of the, the big breads that were delivered, which I usually did. My French was okay. It wasn't great, but, you know, adequate to communicate. And uh, because that, but that's whatever you want. And I learned that by watching what the guys had. You know, I said to, I wanted them to look, I didn't want to look like a fool in front of the barman. So I asked one of the men who was standing and having that bear. So he had said the, uh, to, the, to the barman that he wanted the, uh, the bread. I didn't know what he called it. And he told me what he called it, a trench, you know. Uh, uh, the word is still used. It's a slice. And basically it was a, a, a a half or a quarter of a baguette, and, and you know, which they opened up and smeared butter on. And, and uh, to me, that was better early in the morning than the croissant, which was wonderful, but <laughs> too sweet. Anyway. Yeah. Um, we will continue with more of Alan after this break. This is Internet Radio. What are you looking for in a pipe? Is it the quality of aged briar? Is it a certain shape or finish? Maybe it's the sound engineering that ensures an effortless, smooth draw with each and every puff. That's exactly the kind of pipe Savinelli has delivered for generations now. With such a variety of shapes, finishes, and sizes, it's easy to find something that fits your sensibility and style. Just this year, we've expanded our lineup to include the Bianca, the Lancelotto, the 2015 Collection, and the final installment in the Leonardo da Vinci line, the Vitruvio. For a bolder style, try our more colorful 2015 editions as well. The exotic cashmere, the sultry licoricea, and the striking archipelago red. So whatever you're looking for in a pipe, know there's a Savinelli waiting for you. Contact your local or online retailer to find your Savinelli today. 
And we are back, and now maybe we'll get the answer on tobacco. So did I go through all the tobaccos? That was a question from which yeah. I've wanted. Yes, I did. Uh, you, you, you name it. I mean, starting with, you know, Mixture 79 and Revelation and, uh, you know, Dill's Best and all the kind. I found that the plainer tobaccos, which I like much today, I didn't like very much then because I didn't have the taste for it. It was kind of like the business with the, uh, except I came at it backwards. Like the, there's a, a parallel between the bread and the croissant. Uh, the croissant were like mixture 79 or rum and maple and so on because it, it tasted sweet to me. And I, But as a smoker, as a kid, I liked that. The kid, I'm talking, I really was a kid when I was 18, 19, 20, you know, I was still in my yeah. advanced childhood, uh, at, at least as far as pipes were concerned. And I, uh, whereas, whereas I, older guys like my father smoked, uh, always a, some kind of burly blend that he could find and he had a wonderful rationale he ended he ended up with with edgeworth which he liked enormously and uh he used to be able to get the slices when they were really when they weren't super sweet and so on sure. and i had a big discussion with him once i learned this then he said you know what he said you order your special tobaccos and he was a customer at barclay rex too so he smoked them a lot of tobaccos that he bought from them but it was burly based he said he said and he traveled a lot in his business and he said i can walk into any city in the united states and go into any candy store or any corner shop or whatever it happens to be and i can buy a package of edgeworth he said, can you do that with a tobacco that you can't live without? I said, no, I can't. He said, well, maybe you'll wise up one day. <laughs> and in later years, I kind of did, you know. I mean, I, I used to buy what was what worked, you know. Uh, uh, and you get used to certain things, and you, you know, later on at some point, I'll tell you about my, my life in foreign parts, which included, uh, let's say, a quite long sojourn in, in Latin America, in Chile, in Argentina, and then you know you you have to you want to have tobacco sent in. You'll pay customs duty on the customs duty, you know, yeah. and, and of course the fortune. If you, you could find some of them there, and especially in Argentina, but in Chile, I finally found a, a local, uh, you know, Gloire type tobacco, and I smoked it almost nonstop. Except when I'll tell you later, I had a friend at the and a lot of friends at the American Embassy, and they, they had access to the various imports as well as the American blends. So I would have them get me a can of this or. Uh, or something like that, but that was another story. Um, but I, I, it tastes change. It, there's no question. Uh, you know the, the way the way we drink coffee now as as adults and you know and into senility <laughs> yeah. it was different from the way we drank coffee when we came out. I mean, I, you learn to drink coffee if you do the way your parents drank it. You know, and my mother used to drink coffee with uh, with. Um, you know, with milk in it and two sugars. So I thought that was the way coffee tasted. It was only eventually that I weaned myself away from that. Uh, you know, when I when I got a little older and had other influences on my life. Uh, not that I copied everybody, but you learn that there was a world outside, and in the world outside, people did other things in different ways. Uh, and you grow. Anyway, go on with your question. Uh, I'll. I'll, I'll uh, what was the big fancy tobacco that you wanted to try, or or maybe maybe a better question would be, um, it was was bulk and custom blending tobacco a big thing versus tin tobaccos? Oh yes, oh absolutely, absolutely was, uh, and and we don't even 
uh, think about that today. But even even at Dunhill, I mean, my, my father, who had the wherewithal to be a Dunhill customer, you know, and have their special credit card and so on, he had them prepare a mixture. He said, well, I didn't like the one. And so the, the, there was a tobacco counter at the back of the Dunhill store that used to be on the corner of, I think it was 50th Street and 5th Avenue. It may have been 54. I think it was 50th Street, uh, uh, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but, you know, that's easy enough to find out. Uh, but it was it was a corner shop. Uh, one part, the entrance was on 5th Avenue. It was a side entrance on the side street, 50th or 51st. And, and I... Uh, and he used to go there, and he had the, 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 the guy stood at the counter and would help him, would know him by name, and uh, he would say, oh, yes, how did you like, uh, you know, the blend that we prepared for you uh, two weeks ago? And my father would say, well, it was interesting. I really did enjoy it, but I found it a little too sweet or a little too harsh. And the gentleman behind the counter who had all the little beautiful little jars sunk into a wooden platform oh. with with uh, some kind of metal tops i don't remember the color but it was a wonderful concept so you didn't see the the, the bottom of the jar which was just the vessel probably glass or ceramic and they filled them up each day with the different kinds of tobaccos. And the guy would say, well, maybe maybe if we drop out this uh, uh, tobacco X and we substitute some tobacco Y for it in the next pound, uh, you'll like it better. And they would do it. He did that for a long time. And then he finally, as he got older and older and older, he, he didn't. He wasn't living in Manhattan, you know, uh, or in, in Brooklyn, actually, anymore. And he, he didn't want to go to Dunhill. He wasn't working in the city. He was working, uh, you know, outside on, on Long Island. And he didn't have to, he could have had it mailed to him. But it was all an adventure with him. And I used to go with him sometimes. And, you know, they'd make up something for me. And I'd, I'd go in there. And uh, But, you know, that was, uh, and, and get more or talk to them. It was very interesting. And they had a cigar lounge upstairs on the second floor and had all kinds of wonderful cigars. And in those days, of course, Cuban. Yeah. And we didn't even get there. You know, I mean, that, yeah, I'm sure you don't want to. So this is about pipes. Yeah, we don't but, care about uh, those cigar things. Yeah, well, you could buy in some good local candy stores, you could buy Cuban cigars. You know, I, I really remember that. And it first struck me that this was a cigar that I would smoke if I could. And I, in later years, I did. I had a whole involvement with the manufacturers and distributors of Punch or the Monterey. So, but when I was in college, friends and I would go to, and this was going back in time, on Sundays or so, and we would go. Uh, we would go down to a little restaurant in Flushing, Queens, not far from the uh, the terminal stop. Uh, it's completely different now. And, and there was, we went out to eat in a little uh, uh, Italian restaurant around the corner from the main drag. And it was, um, we'd walk around the corner to this little shop and buy an, almost any Cuban cigar you wanted. Now you have to understand that was a rarity to me because I'd never seen such cigars in, in my, in my, you know, I never thought of smoking them if I had seen them. You know, we weren't talking about the big fat green, uh, you know, uh, uh, cigars that my uh, my uncles in uh, 
various people in the garment trades used to use, uh, or the the cigars that my father liked, which were bearings. You know, that was a very nice cigar in those days. It was a brown cigar, but these were black cigars, and they were they yeah. were just wonderful. And I remember, you know, whatever it is, Oil de Monterey. Those years, it wasn't necessarily black, but it was very, uh, you know, a very. Uh, a Corojo, uh, English market selection, or even darker, and, and it was, uh, uh, you know, we would walk out there, we were, you know, 18, 19-year-old kids walking down the street smoking these cigars <laughs> after, after lunch. It was, you know, it was just fun. It was, it was, it was all fun. It was all a big adventure. We were very innocent, and, and uh, the world was a different world. It was safe. People didn't stick you up on the street, you know, you didn't. You didn't think you'd go into a public men's room and have your head clobbered in the door and your money stolen. It was just not that way. Uh, it was, I'm sure, in certain places, but it wasn't in the world I lived in. It wasn't that protected, but it was a different world. Um, anyway, so what, what was the what was the big fancy top of the line tobacco back then? Uh, Balkan Sobrani. Uh, was around John Cotton in various iterations, numbers one, number one, and the blend, and then number uh, two, and then they put something together, which was the meat. Number two was very was very strong. It was almost black, uh, and 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 then they had a third one in the middle called numbers one and two, very uh, obvious, you know, uh, and and that was the one I liked, which was a kind of a middle in the middle of the road uh mixture similar to St- dunhill standard mixture uh, similar to i don't know what to come with dunhill standard mixture i haven't smoked it recently but you know that that kind of yeah. middle middle row uh, john cotton was very popular i smoked the numbers numbers one and two which i always liked uh, num- number one was a little too uh, virginia a little tangy virginia for me and number Number one and number two was a too uh, too much of the of the uh, dark tobaccos. I found it tiresome. That's all. They didn't have didn't have the overtones that I found in the first one. And then, as I said, they was Balkan. They were all the Dunhill mixtures. And uh, um, and then Balkan started doing all the variations on itself. There's a story uh, behind that too, but we'll get to that later because that came out of a later phase of my tobacco life. My what? tobacco life—that's a good title. Yeah. What was the uh, what was the price of a? I guess it was like a two ounce or a, or an ounce and a half tin of the top stuff. Um. Okay, this is this is really you know, hold on to your underpants. It was about a dollar and a quarter, dollar thirty, dollar forty. Right in that range, somewhere, somewhere between dollar something, dollar plus, you know, because there were varied prices. They would accept, you know, the, and and up to a dollar and a half, sometimes maybe even a dollar something. But that was a lot of money. You have to yeah. understand that 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 subway fare was when I was a kid, it was a nickel. You know, when I was older in those years, um, I give you a comparison. Subway fare had gone up to a dime. Uh, I could go into a luncheonette in mid Manhattan, um, where my music teacher was, uh, uh, 48th street or off 6th Avenue, sort of, you know, diagonally opposite radio city music hall, <laughs> 6th Avenue, in case some of you listeners don't know, they now call Avenue of the Americas, except if you're a native New Yorker, which I am, even though I live in exile in Atlanta, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I have uh, I have a um, 
a recollection that, and I didn't have that much money when I was eight, 16, 17, 18, I was taking music lessons, 25 cents in a local luncheonette where all the local business people, not all, but business people ate lunch, 25 cents would buy you a basic sandwich, like a, uh, a cheese sandwich or a sliced egg or egg salad or whatever else. The basic uh, counter sandwiches that they made. They didn't have them in little plastic wrappers. They made it as you wanted it. So you could say, I want it on this bread, that bread, the other kind of bread. I want no yes lettuce, no lettuce, yes tomatoes. But that, that was about 20 cents or a quarter. Coffee was almost universally in a place like that, a nickel. It was, it was, those were the prices. So now you look at a tin of tobacco when my father could buy, go buy a package of Edgeworth that he would stick in his back pocket and use it until it got ragged and moldy. Uh, but when, when he, when he, and that was maybe, you know, 25 cents, 20 cents. And then the Dunhill tobacco or the canned tobacco was then four, five, six times as much. So it was already approaching money. You know, wow. uh, that, that's, that, 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 that's the determining factor. It was expensive tobacco. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I was never able to convert my dad to that. I, even when I was in the business, I would uh, bring home a tin. Well, I, lived, I had my own home at that point. I would see him, and I would say, here, try this. And I would give him some fancy English mixture. And he would take a smell of it, and he said, smell like horseshit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And I would say, smoke it. And he would smoke. He said, yeah, that's all right. You know, but he, he was a, he was a basically a burly smoker, and he liked that burly undertaste. He did like better burly than uh, than he was necessarily buying. But then in the old days, and I've been told by a, a source that I can't remember now, we could find out stuff like Edgeworth, especially the sliced, was not um, what it is today, where they've turned it into something sweet. They've turned it into something that's dripping with humectants and so on. Uh, but in those days, it was drier, and a large percentage of it was actually uh, a basic Virginia rather than Burley. Um, so, it was very – in those little blue tins, if you remember them, people collect them and use them as matchboxes. You see them all the time at the trade at the consumer shows. I have a, I'm saying in a, sitting in the room I use as a workroom, I have a lot of tins all over my uh, – bookshelves here and then i have some of those old tins which are no doubt worth more than this entire room and we will take a break here while you look at all your uh, old tins that you have on the wall and then we'll be back with more stories with alan schwartz in just a minute the carolinas and the tobacco tradition have been woven together generation after generation from the Blue Ridge Mountains to the coastal low country, it's an integral part of our culture and heritage, building our beautiful tapestry. Cornell and Deal is proud to blend our pipe tobaccos in the Carolinas. Our history with tobacco dates back to the mid-1800s, and in that time we've perfected a variety of blends. The Carolinas have given us the perfect backdrop to do just that. Whether you're a fan of the rich Virginias, bold Latakias, spicy periques, or unique aromatics. We've got a tobacco that's just right for your discerning taste buds. At Cornell and Deal, we live all things pipe tobacco, blending it, smoking it, and enjoying the company of those who share our excitement. Tobacco, it's what we do. Stop by CornellandDeal.com. 
We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show and summer series, Stories with Alan Schwartz. So here's more Stories with Alan Schwartz. But that was, that was I'm just trying to make the economic difference. You can yeah. buy, you want to know about pipe prices? Because that, that I really know about. Um, well, let, let's, do do some, let, let's do some math real quick here, because you said a, a subway, a, a train ticket was what, a dime? At that point, yeah, it had gone to a dime. Just by the time I was eighteen or nineteen, around then. But so if we if uh, we use that if we use that ten cent number for the nineteen fifties, and compare a dollar forty for a two ounce Dunhill tin or whatever it was, yeah. Uh, right now, a New York City single ticket subway fare is two dollars and seventy five cents. So that's twenty seven and a half times higher than it was if you took that dunhill tin at a dollar you know you got it on sale for a dollar it should be 27 dollars and 50 cents it now. is almost it <laughs> is almost i mean you know imported tobaccos are uh, outrageous i mean a tin of yeah. trays whatever i haven't looked at the price lately but you know you can you can uh call like i don't want to give away give up the names but you can call the people at, at arango cigar for example who are very friendly and, and they'll certainly tell you because they know you what the actual uh, list price of certain tobaccos that they carry and they carry almost all of them even when they don't necessarily represent the company per se because they buy it as a set and there's they can be a secondary distributor in other words they buy it from the from dunhill let's say and keep it in stock because there are uh, there are people who uh, 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 this is all a footnote because there are people who are retailers who really don't want to buy you know a, a 2010 case or whatever it happens to be they want five tins of dunhill yeah you know, sure abc mixture yeah in and fact so that's the, 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 I don't. I don't think that's Sorry. anything that we've ever really gotten into on the on on the radio show. Is that there's you know there's there are retailers out there that buy directly from the manufacturers or the importers, and then there's retailers out there that don't want to buy in that depth of that line, so they buy from what we call a Blue distributor. Rothman. Yeah. Yeah. They or they buy it from Lou Rothman or whatever his company is called now, J and R. Yeah. Or there are a number of distributors who are, you know, list price type distributors who do the uh, standard discount to their retailers, and uh, they don't necessarily have minimums. So if you're a regular customer and you're buying some things from them, and you say, well, I want this, that, or the other, do you have any? And, you know, the, the salesperson on the phone will say, yeah, we stock, uh, you know, blends uh a b c d e f g uh and uh, you can look at our catalog and they say well do you have you know kazatsky's mixture <laughs> <laughs> and and if the person has it and uh, the retailer doesn't want to buy kazatsky's mixture from the major importer so the small the smaller or no, the companies i'm thinking of are not small but the major distributors will always have uh, not all of them, but they'll have a number of the tobaccos in demand uh, available because they know that there are some mom-and-pop retailers who don't want to make the investment in something that might stand on their shelf for six months or a year before they sell it. They need the rapid turnover, so they, they might be able to afford uh, you know, five tins or six tins of, of a particular tobacco, but they don't want to make an investment in 100. 
you well, know, the, or in a case size. So they so they get it from the smaller guys because the big guys, the the importer of record, will not sell them small quantities. They don't want to be bothered. And and in the time frame that we're talking about now, in the fifties and sixties, in order to buy directly from the actual importer or from the manufacturer, you really had to be in that area where they were. Uh, because they, yeah. you know, th- there wasn't the World Wide Web. There wasn't a lot of toll-free phone numbers. There were trade shows and there were flyers and mailers. But really, the way a lot of these tobaccos that were coming in from overseas and even the stuff manufactured in the U.S., there was regional distributors or what I used to call, Correct. yeah. If you go back in, if you go back into the '50s and '60s, and and even still today, each county in the United States had a tobacco and candy distributor that bought, right. you know, bought from right. all the big guys, parceled it up into little stuff, and sold to all the little guys in their county. Correct. And a lot of that was also determined, uh, not maliciously, but it was determined by state licensing laws. And and I think you sometimes, not you, but people are comparing apples and oranges. When when I grew up in New York City and its environs, that was and still is in many ways the Big Apple. That was the mm-hmm. center of everything. And, you know, and I, I didn't wasn't aware of it. I lived in New York because I was born in New York. But, yeah. Uh, but but the point is that that the that you had everybody there. I mean, Lane was in New York. They did their own blending somewhere in in, in I don't mean necessarily in the middle of Manhattan, you know. But then again, there were some spaces that were that were less expensive as you got down into the lower numbers. You yeah. know, not, not necessarily on Fifth Avenue. Dunhill had its uh, distribution operation in in New York. Eventually, a lot of the distributors moved to New Jersey. Uh, because they could get larger space for less money. It was just across the river. And certainly it wasn't necessarily for, uh, you know, a drop-in traffic because they weren't drop-in operations. If they were manufacturing and sorting out, they moved to New Jersey. It was uh, it was a better business environment for them, and they could get more space, and there was more space. So, for example, uh, um, uh, Dan Blumenthal, and, and, I mean, now you're talking the, the right years, and Dan um, and his partner, Frank Yanessa, who was a cigar maker in, in uh, Tampa, and Dan Blumenthal was originally a retailer in Manhattan, and he uh, started this company with uh, um, with uh, Frank Yanessa. The company no longer exists. It was sold off, broken up many number of years ago. But they moved to New Jersey, and yeah. they carried a number of major brands, but again, they would not sell it in smaller particles. They would, yeah. you know... John Cotton and so on was one of theirs, but the point was that there was an enormous tobacco business in and around New York. Somebody, I read the statistic and it was confirmed, I'm just saying with cigars, there were over 5,000 cigar factories in the New York City limits, Mm -hmm. okay? Now, a factory could be two guys sitting in a storefront rolling cigars. I mean, they had to be licensed as a factory because that's what they were doing. They were manufacturing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, but they were in every neighborhood. They were all over the place. They're still in Manhattan. There are a couple of places in Manhattan. Uh, to, I, I used to love in the early years, and this gets to be more about me, discovering some of these blending houses. I discovered Atlas Tobacco that way. Um, and thereby hangs a tale which can be developed later. But basically, Atlas Tobacco was a couple of older Greek immigrant type guys who 
in a loft building on 16th or 7th, is somewhere between 14th Street and 23rd Street, but I remember going. It's an old industrial loft-type building uh, where you walked up four or five uh, flights of ratty, not quite ratty, but, you know, but ordinary <laughs> yeah. wooden steps. And uh, and there was this, they had the floor through, and they had these large barrels of tobacco of every kind, and these guys knew everything about the um, the European style, especially the English style mixtures that you, uh, the tobaccos that you would want to know. And I used to buy from them um, because they would sell to the public, not necessarily at the price that they sold those same mixtures that they were putting together for local tobacco shops and, 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 and for some tinning because they did it. And, um, you know, you, again, for very reasonable prices where you would get, a, you know, a pound tin of a blend that was equally easily the match of Balkan Sobrani or John Cotton or something, and for about a quarter of the price. Wow. It wasn't advertised. You got it in the plain tin. It said uh, they stuck a, st- a sticker on it. So you remember Atlas Blend Number 37X. I'm just making that up. <laughs> How but romantic. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't romantic. You could, but you could, you know. Now you take that same tin and call it, you know, General General uh, General Putnam's mixture, you know, and you invent the crazy history about how General Putnam was an American. You go on with that. And we, I used to do copy like that. I mean, you you can make up wonderful stories. And there, Wally <laughs> Frank did it. We were talking about that before. But they were they were they were wholesale manufacturers of tobacco. And guess who bought them? Um, and we'll talk about it later. And and took the blends, uh, and I bought them up. Recently. Cornell and Deal. Cornell and Deal. Well, the guy who uh, who started Cornell and Deal was a guy I knew. He was an advertising guy, one of the Madison Avenue types, and he was a pipe smoker. I bumped him to a couple of times. I didn't really know him then. Uh, uh, you know, just bumming around the shops uh, and. Uh, a little older than I, but very, very nice, very friendly. And he was an advertising copywriter for one of the big uh, agencies. And he uh, loved pipes and tobacco. And when he retired, he decided that he wanted to uh, do tobacco work. And uh, Craig, um, he's a very nice guy. And he bought up, uh, apparently by that time, which was a number of years later, uh, Atlas Tobacco, the two brothers or cousins, whatever they were, uh, were w- wanted to wanted out, and the market was already diminishing. You know that was post 1968 and the the early tobacco, uh, you know, uh, bans, this and that. And um, anyway, uh, it was they then they sold up. The bottom line is they they sold, and Taller bought all of their formulas and probably a lot of their tobacco. And they <laughs> retired, moved out, died, whatever they did. I don't know. I didn't, never really knew them well. I would see them once in a while, but I didn't know them particularly. I didn't even know that aspect of the business at that point. I was still a consumer. But a taller, by the time Taller bought them, I was already uh, in the business. But he bought up the blends and uh, copied some and, and invented his own and, and so on. But that's how he got started. But uh, So let, let's, uh, let's jump forward. Um, yes. When did you get into the business side of it, and why? Uh, long story short. Um, <laughs> there are no short stories with Alan Schwartz. No, there aren't. And it's, 
My father had uh, two friends from work, from a, a, a company. He was the, an executive vice president, and it was a big paper box company. And he was the uh, the safety engineer, but he did everything. He was the engineer. Anyway, uh, and they all smoked pipes. And my father smoked Edgeworth, and his, his friend, uh, Sam was his name, uh, from the company, smoked um, Granger, yeah. which he loved, and his son-in-law, who was also worked in the company, uh, sold, uh, smoked uh, Revelation. And Sam had a country house. It wasn't, I mean, those days it was country. It was about an hour north of New York. And sometimes we'd go up there on a weekend and, and uh, you know, not, not not to spend the weekend. It was only an hour. So, they, you know, they had, it was a farm that they went up to and they did very little. You know, they, they went to the local farmer's market. They sat around. They made a fire. They did, they, they cleared some land. You know, they, 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 it was, it was a, a, a form of relaxation. Anyway, you have to see these three men, all about the same age, all roughly in their, um, you know, 50s, early 50s. And they they would sit around by the fire, and one of them would say, say Sam, who smoked Granger, would say to my father, who didn't like Granger, he would say, Erwin, let me, uh, let me have some of the crap that you smoke. <laughs> <laughs> I want to try and see if I dislike it as much as I always disliked it. I mean, they just kibitzed each other. I'm sure it went on endlessly at that at the plant, but but this was on a weekend, and uh, he would say, my father would say to him, "Okay, but give me some of that that rope." That, that <laughs> and this what was they smoking? They were smoking three commercial blends. But you and a lot of the people that you you catered, they really don't understand that that's where the market was. I mean, for every one tin of of uh, Balkan Sobrani that was sold, there were a thousand or a hundred thousand packages of Edgeworth. It was just, yeah. it was just, that was your mass market, and that was what most people did. They smoked the pipe, and they, they I once said that to my father, and that interesting distinction I think he made. He said, I said to him that uh, he was a pipe smoker, and he said, no, he said, you've got it wrong. He said, I'm a guy who smokes a pipe. You're a pipe smoker, you know, by which he meant that to me it was a vehicle that I was interested in pipes. He had some very expensive pipes and Dunhills and Charity, he had whatever it was, and he could afford it. Uh, but and I couldn't. But he said, uh, and I'm going to tell you one one story about that. And uh, uh, but he he liked just. He liked what he had, and he went to smoke it. And the, the vast majority of people, I knew many, many of them, on the way to work in the morning, they go into the local candy store, what we call the candy store, you know, where they sold newspapers and whatever, and on their way to the train station, and they buy a package of Edgeworth or, or Revelation or whatever they could buy. They throw the box away immediately and stick that roll-up uh, um, aluminum foil pouch in their back pockets. And that was it, tobacco for the day. Yeah. Uh, that was it. They had something left over. They put it in a jar when they got home. They, it was just like the guy, same sort of person, would buy a pack of cigarettes that he smoked and, and, and the paper. That's what the pipe smoke was to them. They preferred the pipe to cigarettes, and that's what they bought. And that's, that was the mass market. And in, 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 in non-urban environments, um, the same kind of people would stop at the uh, stop at a shop and in, in, stop their car on the way to, to, to work, you know, 
or or where they got off the bus there would be a, you know a little tobacco shop and that's that's what the mass the vast majority of people smoke and that's what they thought of as pipe tobacco and the pipes were what it, that, that was a whole other because you had people like my father who could afford whatever he wanted who liked Edgeworth and you had people like uh, you know not like my father who could couldn't afford whatever they wanted and they smoked uh, yellow bowl and King Woody and whatever was on a little uh, card in in the in in that shop where they bought the tobacco um, and and uh, you know what they they all managed to enjoy smoking their pipes and they lived we you and I deal with and cater with people who are much more dedicated, much more interested in the ins and outs and the niceties and yeah. the history and the manufacturing, and that that's that's wonderful. It's fascinating, you know, uh, and uh, sometimes crazy making, you know. <laughs> I used to, when I was in, actually in the business, it used to drive me up the wall when someone would come to look at um, one of the quality pipes, or so even the lower quality pipes, and they'd bring a magnifying glass, and they'd bring <laughs> little measuring devices, and look in everything. Oh, you know, this has a fill here. I said, I would say, well, you know, do you really expect the perfect straight-grain pipe, you know, with with no, no fills, um, which you could hardly find if you didn't use that super, you know, a BB loop would, would be like an optician's examining <laughs> magnifier. If you didn't use that, you would never see it. And what are you going to do with this pipe? It's a $20 pipe. You know, I, I'm, I only did that to you twice, and you won't let it go, will you? Me? Did you do it to me? <laughs> no, but I'm like that no, you, sometimes. I, I don't, and my answer was, look, if you want, you know, you know uh, XYZ, which was the company, uh, if you want this pipe, which is an expensive pipe, and it's going to cost you two hundred and fifty dollars, and that's that's not even market price, uh, you're entitled to have a pretty much a perfect piece, and to find anything concealed underneath that uh, is is within your rights. I said, but I would prefer if you don't do it here. I know who you are. You know who I am. And whether you're here at the show or whether it's uh, you know two weeks later, you discover something like that, you send it back to me. I'll replace it or refund your money. And we will pause right here until our next episode of uh, Stories with Alan Schwartz, and I'll be back in just a minute. Smokingpipes.com has been my family's tradition for over 10 years. My granddad enjoys his evening pipe on the front porch. My father prefers his in the study, and well, me, I like to hang outside the local coffee shop with a pipe in one hand and my smartphone in the other. The best selection is at SmokingPipes.com. They always have the exact pipe I'm looking for. Savinelli, Peterson, Dunhill, and great stuff from dozens of top artisans around the world. Plus, they have over 70 tobacco brands with 750 blends to choose from. Lighters, campers, tobacco jars, yep, they have that too. But the best part about SmokingPipes.com is that it's easy to order from my computer, tablet, or even my smartphone. And if Granddad has trouble with technology, he can always call them at 1-888-366-0345. I heard that. Do you think I'm deaf? I'm the one who told you about SmokingPipes.com, and I had a smartphone before you. You kids today, blah, blah. SmokingPipes.com. Make it your family tradition. This is Internet Radio. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. I hope you're enjoying these uh, stories, ti- story times with Alan Schwartz. Alan's got a great history in the business, and 
uh, I recorded a whole bunch of time with him. I'm a little bit over four hours. So there's a lot of editing that's going into it and a lot of stuff I'd like to leave in it. But, yeah, they're just stories and they don't work out quite uh, quite right for the pipe and tobacco information. But some of them are just too much fun. I, I just I love the idea of getting a cigarette served with breakfast. I mean, you got to love the French. Um, all right, uh, for music, we're going to something that the French love. Uh, we're going to uh, Dizzy Gillespie, pipe smoker, trumpet player, and uh, by request of Kevin, we're doing some jazz. So here's uh, Dizzy Gillespie doing Moon River. Great Dizzy Gillespie on uh, trumpet. That's off of Dizzy 100. It's uh, a compilation of his uh, 100 favorite songs. And uh, I happen to actually own it. Wait, 
We have a uh, lot to get through here in the mailbag, so let's go directly over to the events calendar. Uh, coming up pipe show-wise, August 17th and 18th, Columbus, Ohio. Actually, uh, Dublin, Ohio is the NASPC show, uh, August 17th and 18th. Then September 21st through the 23rd, the Greater Kansas City Pipe and Tobacco Show. And then the new one is the uh, Conclave of Richmond Pipe Smokers. They're having a gathering and a small pipe show at a Moose Lodge. That is Saturday, September 29th, uh, one day only. There is a couple of pre-show events. There will be a uh, dinner in a a barbecue place where you can sit outside and smoke the Friday night before. And then uh, the Sutliff Factory Tour. And if you go to the conclave of richmondpipesmokers.org, there is a uh, place to sign up for the tour of uh, the Sutliff Factory. You just need to you need to make a reservation, I guess. Uh, and then there's a nominal fee because you'll be getting a chance to blend tobacco and take some home with you. And uh, there's also going to be a contest. So uh, go check out the website conclave of richmondpipesmokers.org for that the uh again the pipe show itself is september 29th the friday pre-show september 28th and then uh the next weekend so there's like three weekends in a row with pipe shows september 21st in kansas city september 28th in richmond and then october 6th the texas pipe show fort worth texas at pop safari room And then uh, November 10th and 11th, the 10th annual uh, West Coast Pipe Show. And that is a week later than normal, and it's back at the Palace Station again. So lots coming up. Hope to see you there. Not sure which exactly, which ones I will be at yet, but uh, lots of of stuff coming up. All right, uh, going back to last week. Going back to last week, uh, smoking for fun said i've been listening for about a year always enjoy your show very much i'm a double bassist and two of my favorite players are ron carter and christian mcbride they're both pipe smokers not sure if you have ever played their music uh if not check them out would love to hear them on your show thanks for what you do uh you are very welcome and i believe i did play ron carter a while back but uh well worth going back and revisiting both of those and uh thanks for the tips and Glad you're enjoying the show, and uh, hey, write in more often. Uh, And then Whaley said, W-H-A-L-E-Y said, Great interview. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and had no idea Mr. Anderson and his pipe club was around. I look forward to reaching out to them and hopefully meeting new people and possibly uh, joining. This is a great example of what your show has to offer, along with many other things. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much. Uh, Yeah, if you're looking for a pipe club, you know, you can go on to pipesmagazine.com. There's a, a section of the forums for pipe events and listings, and that's where you'll find all kinds of stuff. If you want to form a pipe club, that's another great place to go and do that. And now is the perfect time of the year to start forming a pipe club because come August, September, everybody's coming back from the summer break and the uh, and and the summer doldrums and everything and getting back into their routine again and it's a perfect time to start it up. Uh, Crash the Gray says, great interview. I like Jim's realism on pricing and estates. I look forward to looking at some of his work. Yep. 
And uh, Down Home Smoker said, nice interview. Glad some people have the patience to be teachers because I sure don't. Uh, I'll have to check out his work. Thanks again and Pleasant Smokes. You're welcome. And uh, Casey Ghost says, nice review of Shanae's Cake. Not exactly one of my favorites, but a good review nonetheless. Anderson was a cord was a cordial enough was a cordial interview if lacking in depth. Uh, he re- refurbishes pipes for the basket crowd, and that is a necessary function in the pipe world. I don't see how anyone teaches for a living. The, the mouthy little beggars won't shut up for ten minutes to learn anything, and their parents are worse. Uh, I will comment that uh, yes, the parents are worse. Uh, I will say that you know that on the uh on the price point of basket pipes you know there's an awful lot and when i mean a awful lot there's an awful lot of the market that is in that uh 35 to 70 or 80 dollar retail price range in fact most of the pipes purchased in the world are in that 35 to 70 or 80 dollar price range Uh, Very few people ever get to the point where they buy a pipe for more than $100. And uh, even fewer people buy a pipe that's like $250 to $300. So, you know, that's a sweet spot right there. And if you can get get an estate pipe at $35 or $40 or $50, then you're getting a $100 pipe that's been cleaned up. And, you know, anyway, it's just a sweet spot in the market. And it's an underserviced one and not much talked about. Uh, and then going over to iTunes, we've got a couple of new reviews. I think there's three that we haven't read, so I'm going to read them for you right now. We do appreciate iTunes ratings and reviews. That is absolutely great. Helps keep this show up towards the top of the rankings. Uh, Bologna Ragu says, I've been listening for a while now and needed to say I too enjoy your show. Thanks for sharing your passion for the hobby. Uh, you're very welcome and uh, glad you're enjoying it. Uh Writing Grave, Writing Rave, writes, uh, great shows. Uh, Hi, Brian, I wanted to let you know how much I am enjoying your show since I discovered it a few weeks ago. I'm keeping current while slowly making myself uh, through the earlier shows. One quick question is, who is is it that sings Happy Trails at the end of the show? Anyway, I've been smoking a pipe for over 50 years, and I'm still learning much from you and your guest. Thanks, Ira. Ira, you're listening. You're doing it right. You're keeping current and catching up on the old ones. Uh, that makes the uh, old ones not quite as painful. Uh, who sings Happy Trails? That is Van Halen. Uh, and so the story goes, they were drunk in the recording studio working on, uh, I believe it was their third album. And they started singing that, and they recorded it, and it made it on the album. Anyway, love the sentiment of the song. Uh, And then finally, Smoking for Fun says, I love this show. I look forward to it each week. Thank you very much. Uh, And again, ratings or reviews on iTunes are muchly appreciated. All right, in uh, just a moment, rant time.
This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. Listen to this. Listen listen to my warning. Beware. You're getting too pricey. And let me tell you why. Uh, an average family of four going to go to a movie with uh, and buy two drinks and one big bucket of popcorn right here in lovely the greater Charlotte, North Carolina area. You're going to drop about 60 to 65 bucks. That's a family of four going to spend 60 to 65 dollars to go see one two hour movie or if it's a kids movie an hour and a half now let me tell you what we've done all right you can get these movie pass things and all those deals and that's great and that's fine and dandy but if there's a movie that you really want to watch instead of for a couple for two of us to go out where it's 25 dollars for two tickets and then uh 15 or 20 bucks for that you know for uh, a drink and whatever if the if it's a movie that we really want to see when it comes out and we think we're going to want to watch it twice just buy the $24 DVD. And this is why I'm warning you, movie theaters, you've got to be careful because the movie production companies know this. And they are getting stuff out on video faster and faster. So they don't have to advertise again. No, in some cases, a movie will come out in the theaters and then two and a half, three months later, the DVD is coming out and you don't have to spend the 40 or $50 for a couple or 60 or $70 for a family of four to go see it when you know you might want to watch it twice, then you own it at home, and guess what? The popcorn is a hell of a lot cheaper at home than it is there. In fact, at home, you can buy four two-liter bottles of Coke for the same price as they want to charge for one medium Coke there. So, movie theaters, beware. That's my advice. That's my warning. All right, comments or questions, please email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. If you have any suggestions, ideas, uh, any more uh, tobaccos to review, let me know. Brian at pipesmagazine.com. Follow me on Facebook. Send me a message there. I'll re- Sometimes I'll respond faster to Facebook. Uh, again, uh, I hope you're enjoying the story times with Alan Schwartz. I want to thank Alan for all the time he spent with me. Thank you all for tuning in and... Until next time. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy trails to you.
Tell me how again. I'd love him to be in the regular Olympics. Uh, maybe on the French team. 